Good morning, church family. I pray that you are all well as we come down the home stretch this morning of chapter 2 in the book of Habakkuk, looking specifically today at verses 15 through 20. And from there, in case anyone is wondering, we will be taking three more weeks to work our way through chapter 3 as we finish up this wonderful minor prophet. But again, this morning, we will be in Habakkuk chapter 2 and looking at verses 15 through 20, where we will conclude God's response to the prophet Habakkuk's second complaint. However, what we must keep in mind here, church, is that God's answer to the prophet Habakkuk is coming to us within a particular context. That context being that due to the moral decay and depravity and injustice that was running rampant throughout the nation of Judah, the nation of God's covenantal people, God had decided then to discipline his people for said injustice and depravity and sin. And that the nation of Babylon would be the tool in which God used in order to do just that. However, in the mind of the prophet Habakkuk, for God to do that would seem to go against the very nature and the very character and the very attributes of God, since Habakkuk knew that his God was, chapter 1, verse 12, everlasting and sovereign and holy and faithful. Therefore, the prophet Habakkuk was left puzzled, wondering how on earth could it even be possible then for God to use Babylon as the rod of discipline against the people of Judah when Babylon was in fact way more wicked than the people of Judah. To which God responds then to the prophet Habakkuk by initially saying to him in chapter 2 verse 4 that the righteous shall live by his faith. In essence, declaring to the prophet Habakkuk that he, God, is faithful and will assuredly vindicate those who believe in his promises, preserve those who trust in his word, and ultimately deliver those whom he declares as righteous. Whereas on the flip side of that church, God is also faithful then to deal justly with the unrighteous. And thus, because of that, throughout the rest of chapter 2, we see God's pronouncement of judgment against the unrighteous nation of Babylon and really against every other evil empire that will come after them, which is communicated to us, church, in the form of five woe oracles. Now, if you can remember back to last week, these oracles of woe, they were kind of like a funeral wailing lament that the nations that Babylon had conquered could one day taunt Babylon with since the nation of Babylon was, as the New English translation puts it, as good as dead. For the God of the universe made clear in verses 6 through 14, church, that the day was coming when Babylon would be plundered and when their empire would become weak and insecure and when their mighty blood-built civilizations would ultimately be destroyed and consumed by fire. In short, the day was coming, church, when Babylon was going to get a nasty taste of their own medicine. And yet this song of mockery against the nation of Babylon, it does not end their church. For as we will see today, there are still two more verses that need to be sung against the wicked nation of Babylon. 
which takes us now to our thesis statement this morning, or to the main theme of our sermon this morning, which is this. Christian, keep yourself from idols and be in all of the glory of the Lord. Christian, keep yourself from idols and be in all of the glory of the Lord. Therefore, at this time, church, let's open our Bibles up to Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 through 20. And if you are visiting with us this morning and do not own a Bible, please know that is okay because we have plenty of Bibles here which are all located in the chairs in front of you. Therefore, please feel free to grab one and honestly to keep it. Because trust me, we here at Faith Bible Fellowship Church want you to have a copy of the Word of God. However, the only thing we ask if you take one is that you read it. Starting today by turning to page 786 and joining us as a church body as we hear the Word of God together this morning. So again, church, we are in Habakkuk chapter 2 looking at verses 15 through 20 this morning, where the prophet Habakkuk writes, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities, and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, and all the earth keeps silence before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, how good it is to know that you are in your holy temple. Father, you are not like the counterfeit gods of this world that are speechless can't talk, can't walk, can't think, can't do anything. You, God, are in your holy temple reigning. A God who, when he speaks, creation comes into existence. A God who hears and who acts in all and through all. You, God, are the only God we worship, and I pray this morning that within each and every one of these dear individuals here that there be no gods before you in their lives. Father, convict our hearts this morning if we are clinging to any idols in the here and now, any of the creation that you have given us as a gift. Lord, let us not elevate it above the Creator. Convict us, Father, this morning if we are. Father, I pray that this dear flock open their eyes and their ears to the text this morning, soften their hearts to be able to receive it, to be convicted by it, if need be. Father, I pray that you help my lisping, stammering tongue this morning. Father, that I give these 
dear individuals, the truth of your word, that I have confidence in your word because it is your word, the God who has spoken it. I pray for your help this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Our first of two points this morning, church, is this. Point number one, Christian, in every area of your life, you are to steward and care well for God's created order. Christian, in every area of your life, you are to steward and care well for God's created order. Verses 15 through 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. So we spoke at length last week, church, about our call as Christians to walk by faith and what that looks like in terms of how we interact with others. Specifically, that we are to treat others how we want to be treated, love others just as Jesus Christ loved us, and do good to everyone. For that is the way of the righteous, to care for and to steward well each and every relationship we have. However, as we see from the text today, that was certainly not the way of Babylon and certainly not the way of the unrighteous. For Babylon, quite frankly, they viewed everyone and everything around them, not as things that needed to be cultivated and cared for, but instead as things that they had every right to utterly destroy, misuse, and abuse. To which Habakkuk writes in verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Now we already know, church, that wine was a traitor to Babylon, verse 5, and that Babylon was in essence a nation of drunkards. However, as we also see today, Babylon, they were not content to just drink by themselves. But instead, it was the practice of Babylon, verse 15, to invite their neighbors over, if you will, in order to make them drink. For as theologian Owen Palmer Robertson put it, part of the depravity inherent in sin is its insistence to involve others in its debauchery. For the king of Babylon was not satisfied to simply get himself drunk, but he also insisted with twist of delight and glee to see others indulge in the same sinful practice as well. Therefore, you do not need to be a rocket scientist to figure out that when you have a group of unrighteous people together, all inflamed by drunkenness, depravity then, it it festers. And drunkenness, as is often the case today, it would lead to nakedness, to debauchery, to fornication, to sexual immorality, and really to that of downright orgies during these promiscuous parties throughout the kingdom of Babylon. 
However, what I want you to realize here, church, is that Babylon, they were masters at being able to deceive others in order to take from them exactly what they wanted. Therefore, Babylon here, they literally had no problem getting others drunk in order to get them naked, to take advantage of them, and utterly put them to shame, which, as numerous commentators have pointed out, is symbolic of how Babylon viewed and treated just about every other nation around them. Because Babylon, they were in essence a nation of predators. Not humanitarians, not philanthropists, not even that of cunning entrepreneurs, but as predators who used whatever means necessary in order to prey on the least of these, take from them what they wanted, and leave them feeling disgraced and covered in shame. And thus, what is yet another way that Babylon has ravaged and abused and defiled the nations around them, we see here in verse 17. For it says that they would do violence to Lebanon and violence to the entire earth. Meaning it didn't matter to Babylon how beautiful the mountain ranges of Lebanon were, where the mighty cedars of Lebanon would grow, or even how content the wildlife and the beasts of the field were among them. Because it was simply the practice of Babylon to roll right into a newly conquered land and to ravage it all, seeing nothing around them as God's creation that they had been called to subdue, but instead they saw everything as potential resources that they had every right to pillage, plunder, and downright abuse. And thus, because of their wicked ways, church, make no mistake, Babylon, they will reap exactly what they have sowed. For as D.L. Moody wrote, if I sow tares, I am going to reap tares. If I sow a lie, I am going to reap lies. If I sow adultery, I am going to reap adulterers. And if I sow whiskey, I am going to reap drunkards. You cannot blot this law out. It is in force. For no other truth in the Bible is more solemn. Now suppose that a neighbor who I don't want to see comes to my house and I instruct my son to tell him, if he asked for me, say to him that I am out of town. So he goes to the door and lies to my neighbor. It will not be six months before that boy will lie to me and I will reap that lie. A man said to me some time ago, why is it that we cannot get honest clerks now? I replied, I don't know, but perhaps I can imagine a reason when merchants teach clerks to say that goods are all wool when some are half cotton, you will not have honest clerks. Dishonest merchants make dishonest clerks. For it is not poetry, but solemn prose. A man must reap the same kind of seed that he sows. And thus church verse 16 states, the cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to them, and utter shame will come upon their glory. Meaning that just as Babylon made their neighbors endure their wrath, so too will Babylon eventually be forced to taste the wrath of God as well. A wrath so great and so powerful that it will, verse 16, expose their uncircumcision and put their man-made glory to that of utter shame. For the unrighteous church, oh, they will make no mistake in the end, reap exactly what they have sowed. 
And thus, with that being said this morning, brother Christian, sister Christian, when you consider the ways of your life, specifically in terms of how you interact with others, steward that of God's creation, and care for the resources entrusted to you, honestly, do you live, Christian, like someone who really wants to cultivate every good thing that has been given to you as a means to glorify your God? Or do you merely practice what some call a scorched earth mentality, where you are content to misuse and abuse and literally ravage each and every good thing that God has given to you, as long as you get what you want out of it, all for your good and for your glory? Now, please make no mistake here, church, for I am not advocating here that we be good stewards of this world and all that God has given to us simply because, like the secularist, I believe this natural world is all that we have. And thus, we must preserve it for as long as possible because when it burns up, we as a society are done for. For I am not saying that, and nor is that my motivation here this morning. However, what I am saying, as Francis Schaeffer so eloquently put it, is that if we as Christians are going to be in a right relationship with our God, then we must treat the things that God has made in the same way that God treats them, because that is the way of the righteous. For the way of the righteous church is that they see every resource in this world, every relationship they have, and every blessing that they have received as a gift from God since every good and perfect gift. Where does it come from, church? For it comes from above, James chapter 1. Therefore, the question that we must always keep at the forefront of our minds, Christian, as we live amongst our God's created order, is not how much can I take of this, or how can I take advantage of this, but instead it must be how can I glorify God in this, through this, and with this? For how can I glorify God in my marriage covenant? For how can I glorify God God in my role as a parent? For how can I glorify God in my job as a teacher, in my season of retirement, in my mowing of the grass, in my walking of the dog, and in my tending of the garden? For that is the question that we must ask ourselves, Christian, each and every morning and in each and every moment of our lives. For how can I ultimately glorify my God in this? Because make no mistake, brother Christian, sister Christian, those who seek to exploit the common graces of God, abuse the people of God, and ravage the creation of God, in the end they will ultimately be put to shame, for that is the way of the wicked. And thus what we must grasp here this morning, Christian, is that we are not our own, but instead have been bought with a price, and thus do not own this world. Therefore, every relationship we have, every meal we eat, every breath we take, every job we hold, and every blade of grass in which we walk, they are all gifts from our gods, and we have been called to steward them well for our God's glory. Therefore, Christian, whether you eat, whether you drink, or whatever you do, it is to be done for God's glory, since your God is ultimately the giver of every good gift that you have in this life. Which brings us to point number two, church. Woe, the sin of idolatry. Woe, the sin of idolatry. 
verses 18 and 19. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trust in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all in it. So as we close out the oracles of woe this morning, we will close specifically with the sin of idolatry in view here. A sin that, quite frankly, had gripped the nation of Babylon. For Babylon, as Ken Fentress described it, were known for their worship of the god Marduk, who was, quote-unquote, the chief chief deity among the Babylonian pantheon. However, church, the problem with Marduk, and really the problem with all the idols that Babylon worshipped, was, verse 18, that there was no profit from them because, verse 18, they were literally the ones making them. Meaning the Babylonian people were, in essence, the ones creating and carving and casting the very idols in which they worshipped. Furthermore, the idols in which the Babylonian people created for themselves with their own hands, verse Verse 18, they were speechless in that they couldn't talk, and not only that, but also they couldn't walk, they couldn't breathe, couldn't move, and literally couldn't do anything other than sit there and look like the very thing that the Babylonians had made them to look like. For the practice described here, church, it is in essence no different than me making an idol for myself out of my children's Play-Doh and then loving it, praising it, glorifying it, and ultimately trusting in it to save me when the thing can't even talk. For it is quite simply a foolish act of the creature, verse 18, trusting in its own creation instead of that of the Creator. And thus, church, the one true creator of all things, God, he then pronounces his final woe in verse 19 by saying, woe to him who says to a wood thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise, can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. In essence, saying, woe to him who has rejected God and been deceived into thinking that some breathless idol made by human hands can somehow teach him and guide him and ultimately save him. And yet that was the way of Babylon, church, for that is the way of the unrighteous, content to worship and to place their trust in the very things that their own hands have created and not in the God of the universe. However, brother Christian, sister Christian, let us not simply sit here on our high horse this morning and laugh at how these primitive people could be so idiotic and naive and foolish to actually worship the mere things that their own hands have made, things that couldn't even talk or walk or breathe, when we just as quickly as a society worship our job titles and paychecks and retirement funds and our homes and cars and yards and our food and drink and luxuries and our fashion and vanity and plaques that are hanging oh so proudly on the wall, all of which, mind you, cannot talk or walk or breathe, and yet we as a society worship them just the same, do we not? 
For as the reformer John Calvin wrote, the human heart, it is an idle factory Christian, and each and every one of us is from his mother's womb an expert at inventing them. A point in which John Johnstone illustrated so well in his book, The Christian Treasury, where he wrote about a young lady who once said to the 18th century English Puritan preacher, William Romaine, Sir, I like the doctrine that you preach, and I think I can give up anything and everything in my life to follow Jesus, but one thing. To which Romaine replied, Oh, yeah? Well, what is that, madame? And she said, Cards, sir. Romaine asked, So you think that you could not be happy in this life without them? To which she answered, No, sir, I could not. So Romaine said to her, Well then, madame, they are your God, and to them you must look for salvation. For it was this pointed answer and faithful reply that eventually led to her conversion. Church, the Heidelberg Catechism describes idolatry as having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God. Therefore, is it any wonder why the Bible instructs us, Christian, to keep ourselves from idols, 1 John 5, to flee from idolatry, 1 Corinthians 10, and to put to death covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians 3. Because those who fail to do so, quite frankly, they will not inherit the kingdom of God, Galatians chapter 5. For the righteous church, they live by faith in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone. Not by faith in the dollar, not by faith in the stock market, not by faith in the government or social media or Amazon or anything else like that. For the righteous church, they simply live by faith in the one who defeated sin, who crushed death, who rose from the grave, ascended into heaven sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and who will come again to judge the living and the dead. For the righteous church, they live by faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, brother Christian, sister Christian, let us search our hearts this morning to see if we, like the Babylonians, are making any room in our lives for the worship of our own creations, for the love of our own possessions, and for the idolization of a world that is passionate away, because sure, these idols, these counterfeit gods, they may offer us some kind of pleasure and amusement and cheap thrills in the here and now, however, and here is your warning this morning, church, if those idols truly become the God of your life, then in the end, you will be given over to them, and you, just like these idols, will ultimately be devoted to shame. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry, keep yourselves from idolatry and put to death any of those worthless, good-for-nothing idols in your life. For as the Lord God himself has declared, there is no other God beside him. Therefore, worship him and him alone, church, and have no other gods before him. Now, as we close this morning, I'll begin with the non-Christian who is here first. And non-Christian, I want to share with you now something I shared with the entire congregation last week during my sermon, that being that there are really only two types of people in this world, for there are those who believe and trust and have placed their faith in the promises of God, and there are those 
who have not. Or to put it another way, there are those who love and worship and bow their knee only before the God of the universe, and there are those who in essence worship a figment of their imagination and that cannot and will not save them. And here's the scary thing in all of this, non-Christian. For those who do indeed reject the promises of God and instead worship themselves and trust in the work of their own hands and bow their knee to the counterfeit gods of this world, for as the prophet Isaiah writes, all the idols that are out there and all their companions and all of their creators, they all will be put to shame. For it is only non-Christian, the creator God of this world that can save you, and not his creation. For only God the Father, non-Christian, willingly sent his son Jesus Christ into this world as truly God and as truly man in order to save us from our sins, clothe us in his righteousness, and reconcile us back into fellowship with him forever. And only Jesus Christ, non-Christian, accomplished that work for us by initially doing for us something that we could never do, that being to live a life here on earth that was free of sin, meaning that Jesus Christ lived a life here on earth, non-Christian, that was sinless and just and holy and righteous and thus fulfilled the law of God perfectly for the children of God. However, the work of reconciling sinful man back into fellowship with a holy God, it did not end there, for a payment still needed to be paid, a sacrifice still needed to be made, which is exactly non-Christian what Jesus Christ did. For the holy, sinless, righteous Son of God willingly bore the wrath that we as sinners deserve for our sin, meaning he, Jesus Christ, died a sinner's death in our place and was crucified on a cross at Calvary and paid the ultimate price as our very substitute. However, it was with these wounds, non-Christian, that the children of God have been healed. And I say that because God the Father, he then accepted Jesus Christ as the propitiation for our sin, as the wrath-removing sacrifice for our sins, and thus Jesus Christ, three days later, he did not stay dead, but he rose from the grave as the proof, as the receipt, as the evidence that he had conquered sin and destroyed death, and that he now offers eternal life to all who place their trust in him and not in the idols of this world. Therefore, non-Christian, let today be the day that you turn from your sin. Let today be the day that you repent of your sin and you place your trust in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone as the only one who can forgive you of your sin, as the only one who paid the price for your sin, who died for your sin and can clothe you in his perfect life and reconcile you back to God forever. Thus, let today be the day that you flee from trusting in those worthless and speechless and good-for-nothing idols of this world, non-Christian, and place your faith in Jesus Christ as the only Savior of the world and as the giver of the gift of eternal life. And to the Christian who is here today, brother Christian, sister Christian, I ended my 
Second point this morning, by encouraging you all to simply flee from idolatry, to keep yourselves from idolatry, and to put to death any kind of worthless idols in your life. However, easier said than done, right? For the allure of wealth, it can be enticing, the seduction of prosperity, it can be tempting, and the pull of the pride of life, at times it can be downright captivating, Therefore, I realize many of you might be sitting there this morning thinking, Pastor, we already know that idols and counterfeit gods and images are worthless and speechless and deceptive and that they ultimately lead to that of death. And thus, what is something that we can do in the here and now in order to flee from these worthless idols and more consistently worship God? And if that is you this morning, Christian, then why don't we consider verse 20 together? And simply note here the disparity or the difference between our God and the idols of this world. For as verse 20 states, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So unlike the idols that Babylon worshipped and the idols of this world. Our God, church, the God of the universe, he is in his holy temple and not as some teacher of lies like Babylon's idols, but as one who is the essence of the truth. Not as something created, but as one who is everlasting. Not as one who is speechless, but as one who spoke creation into being. Not as one that is breathless, but one who breathes life, not as lifeless, but one who conquered the grave. For the God we worship, church, isn't some man-made hundred-dollar bill that can't say or think or do, but the God we worship, church, is living and active in all, through all, hears all, sees all, and thus is worthy of our glory, honor, and praise as the one who reigns over all. Therefore, if you are struggling, brother Christian, sister Christian, with idols and idolatry and with the counterfeit gods of this world, then let me encourage you, Christian, as one who was made in the image of God, regenerated by the Spirit of God, and who now walks in the ways of God, to just take a step back and to think and to consider clearly the two options that stand before you. For option one, the counterfeit fit God, it doesn't love you. It doesn't know you. It can't save you and yet still has the power to kill you. Whereas option two, the God of the universe, he intimately knows you. He sacrificially loves you. He unconditionally chose you and he will ultimately save you. For then the answer is obvious, Christian, for it is, verse 20, go silently before the Lord and reverently worship him and him alone. Because unlike those blind, deaf, dead, and dumb idols that this world has to offer, your God, Christian, he will actually hear you. Your God, Christian, he will actually strengthen you. Your God, Christian, he will actually care for you. And your God, Christian, he will ultimately deliver you. Therefore, plant your trust in that God, church, and see everything else that this sinful world has to offer as nothing more than rubbish. For the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ
Christ, Christian, means that you can now count everything else as loss. For Jesus Christ is now your all and all, Christian, and he and he alone is worthy of every single cost. Thus it is my prayer that we as a church body grasp this morning all the wonderful gifts that our God has given to us. For each and every little thing that we have in this world is ultimately a gift from you. Therefore teach us, Father, to be thankful for all things. Guide us, Father, to steward well all things and yet help us, Father, to not make idols out of anything. Instead, give us the wisdom and the discernment in all things to worship you and you alone, God, instead of your creation. However, we do ask, Father, that if we have any idols in our lives this morning, that you strip them from us, no matter how painful that may be. Because we know, God, you are worth it, for you are the rock of our salvation, the one who sees all things, who hears all things, and who can do all things. Therefore, help us, Lord, to put to death this morning any idols that remain in our lives so that we can love you more for who you are, the one and only everlasting God who now and forevermore will reign perfectly from his holy temple. Let's pray, church.